Good morning, everybody. Good morning, you guys. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Levi Scott. I'm the hey, buddy. My name is Levi Scott. I'm the student pastor here at Fellowship Nashville. It's good to see all of you guys here this morning. And if you're joining us via our live stream this morning, we'd like to welcome you here as well. Uh, this morning, we're jumping right back into the book of John, where we've been for, for a while. And we find ourselves in the middle of the Good Friday narrative. Um, and for, for most modern day readers, regardless if you're a Christian or not, you, you already kind of know how this story goes. Jesus is, is arrested, he's, he's tried, he's crucified, he, he's buried, you know, he dies, he's buried, and then he raises from the dead. So to really appreciate this passage, we need to read it with an ancient Near Eastern mindset. For, for what the original readers would have, how they would have read it. So, I, you know, we've, we've been walking through John, kind of the mindset's, oh my gosh, this guy Jesus is amazing. He's doing all these miracles. He's doing all these incredible things. Oh man, he might be the Messiah. Is this guy the Messiah? He's doing all of these miracles. And is this the guy the prophets were talking about? Emmanuel, God with us? Is this, wait, could this, could this guy be the son of God? Is this the guy? And you just that kind of churning all throughout John. And then, oh, wait, oh, he got arrested. He's betrayed by one of his friends, and he got arrested. Oh, but, oh, man, he's, he's, he's gotten out of situations before. He's slipped into the crowd, and they can't find him, or he said, like, a, a witty retort, and they're like, oh, we don't know what to say. Like, oh, he'll be fine. Oh, he's still, he, now he's on trial. Holy smokes, he's before the Roman authorities now. What, like, it's just this building and building. Like Mike, excuse me, like Mark, I'm looking at Mike, like Mark reminded us last week, Jesus is the hero of this story. But what we're about to see is going to throw us for a little bit of a loop. For the first time in this gospel, it's going to seem like Jesus is been, has finally been backed into a corner, that he's a little bit out of his depth. It's going to seem that way. You guys have that mindset? That's, that's how we're supposed to be seeing this right now. Excellent. Here's your question for this morning. Has it ever seemed like your life is out of control? You know, that's not a hard question to ask. We just, you know, 2020 and everything, Mark was just talking about it. That's not hard to imagine. But has there ever been such a, a, a dark point in your life that you thought, there's no way God could be in this? There's no way that God can redeem this. There's no way that God could be in control of this, that he could even be present in this. With this question in mind, we're going to take a closer look at three characters in this narrative. The lawful priest, the guiltless prisoner, and the sovereign judge. Those are our three characters. And as we explore each of these characters, we're going to ask that question, is God really in control here? Is he really in control here? The answer to this question may feel subtle sometimes, but to the original audience, it's going to be like an elephant in the room. It's going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. And so we're going to explore that. Hopefully we won't miss it. So uh, y'all open your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 28 and then go to 1916. But for the sake of time, we got a lot obviously happening this morning. We're just going to dive right into it. Uh, But first, I'm going to pray over our text. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. 
for the opportunity to dive into the word. Give us open minds and open hearts to experience exactly what you need us to this morning, Lord. We submit to your authority and to your word, Lord. We love you so much, and it's because you loved us first. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, diving right in. Verse 28 and 29. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusations do you bring against this man? They walk to the headquarters, but they do not enter. For an Israelite to enter the house of a Gentile would have made them ceremonially unclean. So, in order to have the ability to eat the Passover meal, they did not enter the building. We then meet this man named Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor of Judea from about the year 26 AD to 36 AD. And as they approach, we see Pilate kind of step into this governor role as, they, as he sees this apparent prisoner coming up to his, his residence. And so he asks the question, what has this man done? Verse 30. They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, he, we would not have delivered him over to you. Notice in this response, the Jewish leadership's response. That it, is so, it is so crafty. It is so, it's, it's, it's got this twistedness to it. It's very sneaky. Legally, they have no way to condemn Jesus in a Roman court. So they can't really give an, an official accusation to what Jesus is doing. Pilate, he's a criminal because if he wasn't, we wouldn't bring him to you. That's kind of what they're saying. Actually, it's exactly what they're saying. But Pilate, this isn't Pilate's first day on the job. He's not a dummy. He notices that there's a clear lack of substance in this accusation. And this leads us to our first character right off the bat. Character number one, the lawful priest. In this passage, who is the lawful priest? It's kind of a trick question, but not really. It's Jesus. Jesus is the lawful priest. The chief priests are wanting so desperately to condemn this, air quotes, criminal as they try to stay clean for the feast. Do you guys see the irony in that? It's a glaring irony. The Pharisees are incredibly concerned about following the law as they are blatantly ignoring the law. They are so, Jesus has done nothing wrong. They want Jesus dead, deliberately disregarding Jesus' deity while attempting to stay clean for the Passover, a feast that is celebrating the Lord's provision as they are turning the Lord over and blatantly ignoring him. The hypocrisy is so tangible in this text. So, is God really in control here? Out of this gathering of chief priests, the only lawful, blameless, qualified priest in this crowd is our great high priest, Jesus. The criminal on trial, again, air quotes criminal, is the only one fit to be our high priest. Even as Jesus is in captivity of the religious elites, he is showing his authority over his captors. Yes, God is very much in control here. 
but the irony is absolutely crazy. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Legally, the people of Israel were not allowed to enact corporate punishment. They weren't allowed to do that. Theoretically, without the law, the scribes and the Pharisees could could just decide that anyone who is a Roman sympathizer under some pretense could be put to death and then they could just slowly whittle away at their oppressors. So, to avoid this, there was very, there was, they were given very little opportunity to enact corporate punishment unless it was someone like a Roman official who would be condemning somebody to death. So unless it was a Roman official, they weren't allowed to put anybody to death. So in order to kill Jesus, they needed Pilate's approval. It's the only way they could, could, could crucify Jesus in this context. Verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show, but what, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. John three fourteen through 15 says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man... Whoops, I knew that was going to happen too. I knew it. I've got a little thing on my keys because I lose my phone all the time, and it'll go off in my pocket, and then it'll go, my phone is right here, and it goes off immediately. I literally thought that in my brain. I was like, that's going to go off, isn't it? And it did. God's providence. Uh, it is. It was supposed to happen. I, fir- I firmly believe it. Okay, where was I? John, thir- John 3, 14 through 15. I'm just going to read it again. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must God's son be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John eight twenty eight says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, that I do, that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And then John twelve thirty two through 33, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. That word lifting up in the Greek is the Greek word hupsao. And that word hupsao can have two different meanings in the Greek. And it can have a more figurative meaning or a more literal meaning. Normally in the New Testament, this word is used figuratively. To be lifted up, to be exalted, to be made great. That's kind of the idea. In John's gospel, Jesus does something really cool. He uses this word in a literal way to describe his death literally being lifted up on the cross. The language Jesus uses in this moment is absolutely perfect. It is absolutely flawless. In this, as he does all the time, in this literal lifting up, Jesus will also be figuratively lifted up. As he is lifted up on the cross, he will be figuratively lifted up. Through his lifting up on the cross and his conquering of death, through his resurrection, Jesus is crowned king the promised one, the Messiah. Acts 5, 30 through 31 says, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted, it's the same word, hupsao, exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Just as Jesus is literally lifted up on the cross, he is figuratively lifted up in his exaltation. Verse 33 and 34. 
So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate's first words to Jesus are absolutely identical in all four Gospels. Is Jesus the king of the Jews? Yes. Yes, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. So why doesn't he just say yes? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Why, why isn't he just like, you better believe it. I'm, I'm in charge here. Woo. Like, well, I, like, he, doesn't, he could have just said yes. But he doesn't in order to make a distinction in his answer. Verse 35 and 36. Pilate answered, I am, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus does have a kingdom, but it is not of this world. It's not a kingdom maintained by military might. His kingdom isn't the conquering, oppressive, power-hungry kingdom like Rome. It's different. If it was more like Rome, his servants would be fighting to protect their king. Verse 37 and 38. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I have come to, into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This verse is also incredibly ironic. Pilate, the decently perceptive governor, asks, what is truth? As the literal personification of truth is right in front of him. The word made flesh is in the room with him, talking with him, and he looks the personification of truth in the eye and says, what is truth? Exasperated, he goes back to the Jews to proclaim no guilt can be found in Jesus. By law, he can find no reason to have Jesus executed. Verse 39 through 40. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at, at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Seeing no fault in Jesus, Pilate offers to have him pardoned, but the crowd refuses. Instead, they call for the release of a man named Barabbas. In addition to this passage, we learn through Mark 15 and Luke 23 that Barabbas is a robber and a murderer and a thief and a rebel. He was most likely a member of the Zealots. Now, we, we've, we've talked very briefly about the Zealots at Fellowship Nashville before, but just kind of as a, a brief review. The Zealots were a Jewish extremist group that believed it was their duty to overthrow Rome. The Zealots would, raise Ro would, would rather raid Roman gatherings, destroy property, kill officials and soldiers in the belief that God was the only one who should rule Israel. Their hope was in a militant Messiah who would lead them to victory. 
And this leads us to our second character, character number two, the guiltless prisoner. Who's the guiltless prisoner? It's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. But there are some amazing layers to this particular character. So we're going to go back to Barabbas for a second because there's a lot of depth to this guy. The word Barabbas is an Aramaic word that is made up of two pieces, bar abbas, which means that word bar is son and abbas, that's Abba, that's father. It's son of the father. That's what Barabbas means. Barabbas is the way we say it in English, but bar abbas, son of the father. But Barabbas was not his full name. Many of, of the modern translations that we, we have, our English translation, just shorten it down to Barabbas. And a couple of our modern translations include this thing that I'm about to tell you. But in our older manuscripts, in our older manuscripts of the New Testament, of the Gospels, we find his full name is Jesus Barabbas, Jesus Barabbas. That's why... If you look, I, and I'll just tell you, you can go back and explore it later. Matthew 27, 17, Pilate refers to Jesus as Jesus who is called the Christ. It's because there's two Jesuses up there. Now, Jesus wasn't like this super rare name where it's like, we all know who Jesus is. It's Jesus, that guy. It's like there, Jesus was the, was the Greek version of Joshua. Like there were a lot of Jesuses running around. But that's why when Pilate refers to Jesus who is also called the Christ, it's because there's Jesus Barabbas and Jesus, who is also called the Christ. The differentiation. Jesus is the guiltless prisoner. We know this. Jesus is without sin. In this moment, he can walk away, no problem. He's guiltless. He's God. Is Barabbas guilty? You better believe it. He's super guilty. He's a murderer. He's a thief. He's a rebel. He deserves death. But what we're about to see is Jesus takes his place. Barabbas was going to be hung on a cross. I don't know if we talk about that very much. This was a, who are we about to hang on a cross? Jesus, who was called the Christ, or Jesus Barabbas? Who is it going to be? So Jesus literally replaced Barabbas on the cross. Is this ringing any theological bells for you guys? Barabbas was about to be hung on the cross. The choice for the people was Jesus Christ or Jesus Barabbas. It is an active representation of what Jesus did for us. We are Barabbas. Barabbas represents us. We get to see a physical representation of what is spiritually about to happen. That was, a, that was the choice, us or Jesus. And Jesus said, take me, they get to go. Jesus is innocent. We are guilty, period. Jesus was the guiltless prisoner that took on sin so that through the shedding of Christ's blood, we might be guiltless before God. Jesus took our guilt so that before the wrath of God, we could be seen as innocent. Jesus was the guiltless prisoner. He gave us that. He took our guilt, our shame, our sin, I know this is like baseline gospel, but that's what's happening. And that's what happened to us. We're seeing a tangible example. 
The Son of the Father, capital S, capital F, is proclaimed guilty so that the Son of the Father, Barabbas, us, can be free. That phrase, Son of the Father, like we capitalize capital F, lowercase f, lowercase f, Son, God's Son of the Father, versus Son, me, of my Father, my earthly Father. That would be, again, sons of fathers. That's us. That, that's, that reflection, that is so real. Is God really in control here? Holy smokes, yes. He's super in control here. We get this absolutely tangible example through the cries for murder of God's son. We are offered life. People often float past this Barabbas passage. I feel like it was like, well, he's the bad guy. He, he goes free and Jesus is on the cross. It's because no one really understands what's going on here. God is in complete control of this. I could go on and on and on about Barabbas. It just is such a huge moment. But we're gonna keep going because we do not have a ton of time. Verses one through four of chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. In hopes of appeasing the chief priests and convincing them to have Jesus pardoned, Pilate attempts to have Jesus stripped of his honor. Maybe if Jesus is humiliated, that'll be enough for the Pharisees. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time this morning to go into in depth to the flogging that Jesus went through, but if you haven't, I would really encourage you to dive into that on your own time. Jesus was absolutely torn apart for us in this moment. It's not just a, a, a disciplinary thing. This guy got ripped to shreds. Verse five through eight. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, we ought to die, uh, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. Pilate suggests they crucify Jesus, knowing full well they don't have the authority to do that. But when he hears what they are accusing Jesus of is claiming to be the Son of God, Pilate is afraid. He finally gets the full picture. This isn't someone just claiming to be an earthly king. This is someone claiming to be God's son. And the weight of this moment and the decision hits him in full force. He is afraid. Verse 19 and 20 or excuse me, nine and 10. We enter this, uh, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Isaiah 53, seven says, we were oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The Lamb of God did not respond. 
Pilate then responds by proclaiming his authority over Jesus. And here's how Jesus responds. Jesus answered him in verse 11. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This leads us to our final character. Character number three, the sovereign judge. Pilate proclaims his authority over Jesus as judge of Judea. Who's the sovereign judge here? Hint, it's not Pilate. It's Jesus. Pilate's only authority is because God gave it to him. If you were in power, this goes for anybody, if you were in power, God put you there. Does that mean that you're going to be a good ruler? Absolutely not. But it does mean that God has authority over you. And in this moment, we actually see Jesus proclaim judgment over Pilate at his own trial. Pilate, you are in sin, but the one who delivered me to you, Caiaphas the high priest, he has greater sin. Jesus, as the sovereign judge of the universe, proclaims judgment on his oppressors in this moment. Is God really in control here? Yes. He is literally judging the judge of his trial. He is proclaiming his authority over the situation. If God has authority, if God gave authority to Pilate, and Pilate is the judge of Jesus' trial, then this trial was ordained before time began. Pilate is given authority over his trial because the Lord gave him that authority. Verse 12 through 15. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So then Pilate heard these words. He brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. And it was the day of preparation of the Passover. And it was the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. John points out that it's the sixth hour of the day of preparation. Do you guys know when the lambs are sacrificed for Passover? on the sixth hour, on the day of preparation. That is not by accident. As I welcome the band back up here, I'm going to ask you guys that question again. Is God really in control here? Our Lord used the hypocrisy of the religious leaders, a corrupt legal process, false charges, an oppressive government, and allowed himself to be brutally beaten and murdered to bring, uh, to bring about the redemption of the world, to bring about redemption to us. Now let me ask you guys that question again, but a little bit differently. Is God really in control here, not just in this room, but 
present tense here. If he did all that for you then, imagine what he has planned for you now. Imagine what he is doing as we speak. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. All things, not just good things, all things. I don't care how bad it is. God is in complete control. Well, even if it's this, yes. Well, I I just, someone just, yes, everything. I think of every, everything that you've been through. The hard, hard, hard stuff. God was there, not just hanging out, actively working, present, there. Time is ordained by the Father. He's there. I don't care how bad it looks, the answer to this question will always, not always except for, always be yes. Put your, back, put your mind back into the mind of the original reader. One more time. The Savior is about to die. The Savior. You, up to this point, we are so, this guy is the Messiah. This guy is the Son of God. We are 100% positive, no doubt, this is the guy. And he is about, he's under trial and he's about to be crucified by the government that has been oppressing you forever. Whatever hope they have left is absolutely plummeting to zero. For so many, that was the, in this moment, That was the worst day in history. The hope for the universe is about to be murdered. But even then, he was in control. God was in control as his son was murdered. The Lord loves you so dearly. The Lord loves you so much. What what a blessing it is. What an absolute blessing it is that God turned what should have been a terrible, horrid, horrid Friday into a really, really good Friday. I really, really hope and pray that y'all, that resonates with you. That that Friday, in that moment, all hope was draining away, but we had no idea that God, in that moment, was saving us, was giving us a chance when we deserved nothing. I pray that penetrates your hearts this this week, you guys. Would y'all pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you so much. And it's because you loved us first. Because we know the most tangible example that we have of your love 
is written in this book that you are going to have your son killed so that we have a chance so that we could have a relationship with you that we could be before you and all you see is your son's blood and you say you are innocent before me I just I can't wrap my mind around that in our imperfection, in our utter disdain for you, in our complete and utter depravity, you saved us. Lord, I'm so grateful for your sovereign hand that you know all things because you ordained all things. I pray that we realize that this week, Lord, that we realize that you are in control, not just in the good times, not just in the blessings, but in our darkest, most horrid moments. You are there actively participating. We thank you, Lord. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.